Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. To Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church that meets in your house. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my, in my imprisonment. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. And I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not by compulsion be of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So, if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it, to say nothing of your owing me even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ, sends his greetings to you. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Here ends the reading of the word. Father God, as we sit here in the cool of the early morning, let us receive a good word about your liberty and your life and your love. We ask this in the precious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. C.S. Lewis used to point out the fact that true liberty could never be produced by secular values. That attempts to build a secular society that would hold on to liberty would ultimately always end up cannibalizing itself because it could never account for that question that, you know, children love to ask. Why? Why? 
Why do we need to uphold these principles? Why do we need to uphold individual freedom of thought? Um, even forgiveness and grace. Why? And of course, C.S. Lewis lived at a time where he got to see the rise of the most deadly secular governments that have ever graced the world, from Mao to Stalin to Hitler. And to connect C.S. Lewis's thoughts to more modern lingo, why should cancel culture not cancel if it refuses to believe in the God of Scripture? Survival of the fittest gives ample reason to crush those who we disprove of in their actions. So how can secular thought genuinely hold on to morality and values if there is no God that esteems such moralities and values? While C.S. Lewis's generation and maybe a few others were able to manage living in a contradiction with little thought that their morality, the philosophy by which they lived, couldn't be sustained with believing we descend from pond scum. This small book of Scripture, Philemon, that we will be in in the next two weeks, it really deals with the individual who a godless society of Rome would have been happy to say is now worthless to us. Let's undo them. And we'll see this individual encounter God's liberating grace. This little book helps show quite a bit about the best kind of liberty that has ever graced the world. And it is not American liberty. It's the infinitely more valuable Christian liberty. We begin in verse 1 with Paul calling himself a prisoner. And there is nothing good about being a prisoner in the ancient world, just as there's nothing good about being a prisoner in our own day. Still, many, and many commentators point out how odd it is that Paul begins this specific letter by mentioning the fact that he's a prisoner. And when we think of Paul as a prisoner, we likely picture him in his, in his uh, house arrest in Rome when he wrote letters like this one and Ephesians that we're now in. He probably wrote these two letters at basically the same time. Um, and others that he wrote like Philippians and Colossians. And yet, that's not the kind of prisoner that Paul has in mind. Actually, Paul already knows that Caesar can't stop him. The walls of his confinement cannot stop him. This, remember, is the Paul of Acts chapter 16, who has already seen the power of God free, able to free him from prison in Philippi. Paul knows his being a prisoner has nothing to do with Caesar. No, rather, Paul has in mind the moment of his conversion in Acts chapter 9. The day where the Apostle Paul was running the wrong way from God and God, as his master, captures him and grabs a hold of him. And so Paul begins this little letter of liberty remembering, in one sense alluding to the fact that he was once a runaway and yet his master grabbed a hold of him. And so likewise, now he's going to be writing about Onesimus. And four, and on the behalf of Onesimus, who is a slave runaway, to his master Philemon. And he's going to allow for Philemon in his Christian liberty to decide what happens next in the life of Onesimus. A master in Philemon who would have had absolute power over Onesimus in deciding what to do with him. The Roman culture would have been happy with any decision, even death itself. 
There's actually a story that comes from this same time in the history, in the annals of, of Roman history, of there was an attempt by one Roman slave to kill his master. And so that same master decided to put to death his 400 slaves as an example. And Rome had no problem with this. Philemon literally had Onesimus' life in his hand by the secular values of his day. He could cancel him out. He could do whatever he wanted with him. And Paul's going to begin this brief letter by alluding to the fact that, remember Philemon, I was a runaway. And yet I was captured by my master, Jesus Christ. And then Paul mentions how Timothy is also there writing this letter. Because certainly if Paul was friends with Philemon, Philemon would have known Timothy as well. And next the apostle does something that must have delighted Philemon to hear. Paul equates the work that he's done as an apostle. I mean, he is an apostle. And the work Timothy does as a pastor, and he levels the the playing field and, and says, Philemon, your work is just like ours for Christ. To have a direct apostle who is called by the risen Lord face to face say, when it comes to you and I, we both ultimately have the same kind of job at the end of the day. We work for our great master. There is, and there is dignity and value in working for our master. Just, just remember that. Because, and we need to apply this in our own lives. Just because I'm, for instance, up here speaking right now, doesn't mean that I'm any better or than you who are working for the Lord in your own ways, in, in the own calling, your own callings that he has given you. It's the spirit by which we live and move and have our being that gives our efforts value. Not the, not the role we play by the master, but the spirit by which we do the things we do. And then it continues. Not only does Paul take care to mention Philemon's work, but he mentions Philemon's wife. And how she's a member of the same family of God. And one more name is mentioned. Archippus, whom history tells us was not only the son of Philemon, but he actually was a pastor. We can actually even see this affirmed in Scripture in passages such as Colossians 4.17 to help support that historic claim. The Apostle Paul knows Philemon's household. He addresses them by name and he addresses both them and their work on behalf of Christ with dignity and honor. And he says, I am proud of you. And then Paul closes the greeting by mentioning one final group. The entire church that met at Philemon's house. It wasn't until the second century where Christians started to have what we enjoy this morning. A a separate building in order to worship. We, We began as a faith in home churches. And because this letter will require the entire household of faith to come to understand a little bit more about the measure of God's grace, it includes all of them. Not just Philemon's immediate household, but the household of faith by which he has relationships with. They all need to understand in order for Christian liberty to best succeed. And Christian liberty always begins with what Paul will state in verse 3. It must come from God-granted grace and peace. Liberty we now enjoy as Christians was received because our God has blessed us with grace and peace that came from Him. 
Here we are gathered together today on the 4th of July, and we're not all that far away from the place where the founding fathers of this nation gathered together in order to make a declaration of liberty. And yes, that liberty wasn't fully accomplished on that first day, but still, likewise, God established a promise of liberty beginning in the garden, beginning in Genesis 3.15. And yet the victory of liberty was not yet secured until the cross of Christ. And three days days later, he defeated death in the resurrection of Christ. And Paul wants us to remember that we have a God-born grace and peace, a liberty that has been given, that ideally speaking, frees us up to be liberating towards others. And then in verse 4 to 7, Paul now offers a prayer, and he offers a prayer specifically for Philemon. Paul basically says to Philemon, I thank God for you, Philemon. I pray for you. And we can even see in verse 5, Paul even takes the time when he counters people who may have crossed paths with Philemon to ask about him. And he gets excited about the fact that when he asks about Philemon, he sees that he's always basically at work in loving and serving the Lord, in loving and serving his God, in loving and serving by extension one another. This isn't just lip service here. Philemon's faith is something to be commended because it's a truly loving, living, active, abiding faith that permeates throughout his household and even his home church. But now we're about to have the Apostle Paul ask Philemon to grow even a little more faithful and loving towards his Lord and Savior. Christianity is not a total enlightenment kind of religion in this lifetime. We always have room to grow. Christians, we don't hand out black belts for mastery. Christ is a Lord constantly causing us to grow and mature and walk in new ways, in new pathways. He puts before us new and unique challenges regularly in order to grow us. And as Paul in verses 6 and 7 begins hinting at to Philemon, an entirely new kind of challenge, Philemon, is about to be put before you. And I am praying that you grow enough that you rise to this present challenge that's about to come before you. That's something we don't often esteem in life. How new challenges can actually be gifts from God. We gripe because we want things to go back a certain way. And fail to realize God's allowing something to be different in our lives so we grow to walk an entirely new kind of pathway in deeper maturity and deeper love and deeper appreciation for His grace. You know, when I reflect back on my uh, decades as a Christian believer, the most notable seasons of growth always come with these unique challenges. God allows us to be changed by difficult decisions. Hard circumstances, unexpected situations, difficult diagnosis, the hard moments, the persistent temptations that we weren't prepared for at first. I know several of you here today are currently facing challenges I've never been made to face. And likewise, I at times face challenges that maybe you have never been made to face. 
But regardless of who is facing what kind of challenge, this moment in Philemon shows us God puts up mile markers and obstacles for His people for us to be challenged in growing into deeper relationship with Him. We're His slaves. We're His prisoners. And our Lord is the Master. And this is just what He does. So that we might grow to better apprehend His grace, His love for us. His truth. In those moments where the road is before us and maybe we don't want to walk, we must hold on to the fact that this is the Lord who promises us grace and peace. This is the Lord who assures us that as we pray for all who come and follow Him, we truly ultimately will receive rest. I know the challenges of life make us doubt rest, but it is at the end of it all. We walk, brothers, brothers and sisters, towards that ultimate day of truer liberty. From all sin, from all sorrow, from all struggle, and from death itself. We walk a revolutionary path. We walk different roads, different from the world's revolutionary paths. And when we reach the crossroads of life, like Philemon is reaching at this moment, we, make, we count the cost of it all, and we decide, are we willing to continue going forward in the Master's pathway, in faith? A new challenge is being put before you, Philemon. And it's up for you to decide what to do in your Christian liberty. And while the Apostle Paul also states in verse 8, Hey, you know me, Philemon. You know I'm not afraid to say a bold word. You know that if I needed to command you to do something, it would be well within my rights as an apostle to do it and demand it. Paul says, I'm not going to force your hand on this one. Even though I could because of my role within the church, I am not going to order you to do this. Because I want you to make a decision to embrace this present challenge not based on what I demand, but on your capacity to love and your love of Christ. Everyone hates a taskmaster. And sometimes the same individual can look like a taskmaster to one individual and a liberator to another. We see this best in the story of the prodigal. We love the prodigal. He has the loving father who runs towards him and he doesn't care that his son has basically in one sense robbed him of honor and dignity and, and, and financially. The father just wants to embrace him in his love and his grace. We love to see that moment. And yet then we have that extra scene that we don't know what to do with, with the elder brother who's angry at the father's love. And I love how the NIV translates it. It's one of those moments where I think the ESV is... Even though I'm, I'm happy we've moved to the ESV for other reasons, but the NIV gets it best when it says and it quotes the elder brother saying, Here, Father, I have slaved over you for all these years, and you've given me nothing. He saw the father as a taskmaster, the same father who just moments ago proved the fact that he loves boldly and graciously and lavishly. He just continues to look at God as a taskmaster. And God doesn't want you to see Him as a taskmaster. He doesn't want you to be motivated out of obligation. He wants you to be motivated out of grace and love. 
So he puts that road before us. You choose where to walk. You choose where to go. And please, choose based on love. He wants you and I to see the liberty he offers in Christ. And for us to desire to be changed because we love him. When I met my wife, I could not just yell at her to love me. I could not just command to her to love me and her vice versa. She could not just yell at me or obligate me to love her. A love that is, is demanded is no love at all. Love builds through a genuine relationship with one another. Bruce sent me a frightening article this week. One I, after, immediately after I read it, I called him. I said, I think you need to send that to the entire consistory. And, and he's planning on doing that. And it's basically the fact that more than one-fourth of individuals who were regular church attenders... I mean, these are not the the holiday Christians. These are not the people who go to church because nothing else is on the social calendar. This is the regular attender. 27% have already decided that on the other side of COVID restrictions being lifted, they plan and have committed themselves to never darken the door of a church again. One out of four. And that's stuck with me every t- moment since I've read it. And the more I thought about it, unfortunately, the less I am surprised at it. Because how many Christians, for instance, likely think the most important reason to attend church is because God commands it? Yes, God does command it. But God wants you to come to church because you love Him. I mean, for those who, who see God as this just taskmaster, Politicians must have been who basically said you can better love people by never going to church even when you're healthy. They must have sound like a liberator. Wonderful. But God's not a taskmaster. God wants you to come to worship him and sing praises in his name and to hear from his word because we love him. And as I continue to see more people out and about these days, and, um, and, and I love to see people returning. Let me, let me confess something to people that maybe you're still at home watching. I have no desire to see you return to Old Goshenhaben because of a feeling of obligation. I don't want you to return to Old Goshenhaben because of a feeling of peer pressure. I don't even want you to do it because you just heard that stat and you you feel the peer pressure not to be linked into that clump of 27% of individuals who are happy to admit they never will attend and darken the door of a church again. I want you to ultimately come back to worship the Lord in communities with others because of love. Because of love for Christ. Because of love for community. Because of love for fellowship. That's the beautiful thing about the Christian faith. It recognizes that the highest kind of love cannot be demanded or required, but it has to be freely given. First by God freely giving his love to us, and then we are so changed by him freely giving his love to us, we desire to give freely our love back to him. And so, 
you're listening at home to finish my thought, whenever that time comes where maybe you finally return to worship, please know we'll embrace you with love. Not because we're obligated to or supposed to, but because we have the freedom of God's love. So Paul has set the stage for the motives and values that he wants Philemon to remember. And Paul, instead of declaring to him, I'm an apostle, you must listen to me, decides to appeal to him again in liberty. And he also decides to appeal to him as an old man, which at this time, the apostle Paul was Bruce Clydesdale's age. So Bruce, biblically speaking, you are an old man. Greg, I, Greg, I don't even know what to do with you on your 70th birthday. <laughs> You're an old, old man. That's, that's just the biblical fact. But then Paul, as an old man, says, Hey, let me just tell you, my friend Philemon, your one runaway slave, Onesimus, he's become like a child to me. And there's quite a bit here. First off, This is an older Jewish man who sees himself as a new father to a young Gentile, once pagan runaway slave. They were both utter and total opposites in the culture. They were on opposite ends of the spectrum. Do you see how the power of love, do you see the power it can have in ending all social constructions of segregation the solution to fix segregation isn't to return to former pathways of putting isolating labels on one another and saying they can't relate to one another because of their vast differences but actually what fixes divides is by moving forward not demanding something moving forward in love and boldly loving one another in our differences and it's also in this verse, also, we likely get a hint of how Onesimus came to know Paul. It was most likely, though we don't know for certain, Onesimus had a good master. He had Philemon. Philemon, being a good master, allowed his slaves to be a part of the church family. And a part of that church family, he had likely come to know Paul, and yet Onesimus decides to run away from his master. And we know from just the reality of, of Roman slavery, he must have stolen from Philemon because he not only leaves modern-day Turkey, he arrives all the way in Italy. To be able to do that as a slave with no money is, is likely impossible. So Onesimus, in one sense, is almost probably a story a little bit like the beginning of Les Mis, if you're familiar with that story. Someone who is found trying to rob someone godly in order to secure their freedom, and yet, in so doing, is led down a path that they receive a greater freedom. And so at some point in Anesimus' escape, he, he becomes a believer, and it seems like he must have sought out Paul as this intermediary. What do I do now, Paul? Because if I go back to him, he has the right to kill me. He has the right to do whatever he wants with me. What do I do, Paul? And in that moment becomes this unlikely father and son relationship. 
And then Paul continues his letter to Philemon. And it's this great line of sarcasm. I think the translation did well to preserve it. And yet, you heard me right. Paul is giving sarcasm here in verse 11. You see, Onesimus' name actually means profitable or even useful. What a name for a runaway slave, right? Profitable. And so Paul, in writing about the slave named Profitable, Profitable, sarcastically inserts, yeah, so the slave named Profitable that once was worthless, he's finally become useful. He finally now lives up to his name. And he has become useful, not useless to both you and me. Remember, laughter and humor and even sarcasm, which Paul utilizes here, is not always godless. A little teasing and jest, when done in the right spirit, can be a winsome and loving endeavor. The call of Christianity is not for us to be these dour, uh, humorless individuals. But it's also worth mentioning that in Paul's humor, it does help show the powerful, life-altering reality of God. God takes up people who can't live up to their name and gives them a name of value through him. Even think of Onesimus still by Roman worldly standards. He's still useless. He's still a runaway slave. What is the runaway slave found a, a mission doing? He helps an imprisoned criminal. That has no value. And then this runaway slave helping the imprisoned criminal, what do they do all day? They try to convince people to worship and love a former criminal executed Jewish carpenter named Jesus. Worthless, worthless, worthless by the world's values. And yet here we are today, 2,000 years later, in a language that didn't even exist at this time, speaking of Onesimus. Because he has value because he's connected to the one who has eternal value. Through grace, through love. He's made peace with God. God takes challenges. God takes failings. God takes things that were once unprofitable and useless and changes people and challenges them, freeing them up in order to, that they might bless others. And then Paul, declaring the restoration of Onesimus, says, I'm sending him back to you. I'm sending my very heart back to you. There's a sense in which he's, he's basically saying, in the deepest sense... When I give him to you, understand I love him but the very core of my being. And I'm going to entrust him into your hands. Because I see a greater opportunity here, Philemon. Paul is hoping. Philemon embraces in this letter the principle that it'd be better for communities to move beyond slavery because of the life-freeing power of Jesus Christ. This text, when appropriately handled, became a springboard text for the abolitionist movement around the world. As Onesimus returned, Philemon would have had every right to do whatever he wished by Roman law, and Paul knew that. And so sending Onesimus to Philemon was in one sense a risk, but Paul was willing to take that risk, and Onesimus was willing to walk that risk. And Paul is putting the challenge and the decision before Philemon so that he might, in his Christian liberty, respond in love and grace and in peace. 
And God orchestrates moments in our life as well where we have an opportunity to respond in love and grace and in peace. And so are we rising to the challenge? Or are we being the taskmaster? Are we the taskmaster? Are we the grace giver? If we look hard enough at this passage today, we can see that true liberty is always incompatible with maintaining a taskmaster type of slavery. A true love can't be demanded. Once we appreciate what Paul is saying, once we remember Christ, how can we not strive to love one another? How can we not dare to hope for restoration stories and freedom stories and stories of liberty because of who we know our God to be? For us as Christians, the fact of the matter is, Christ became a slave for us, allowing himself to succumb to the cruelest of all taskmasters, both man's sin and death itself, so that we could be made free. And once we remember that, once we remember that, we become a people who no longer do things like come to worship, study the word, live in community with fellow believers because we're obligated to do it, or because God demands it of us, but become by, because by Him and His words, we who were once useless are liberated and made useful to our households of faith, to our homes, to our communities, to our families and friends. How freeing it is to be liberated by God, both from death and sin, in order that we might come and love him boldly. Amen? Let us pray. Father God, in the words of Scripture, you write a story of emancipation, a story of freedom. Help us to be carriers of liberty in our communities to our loved ones, to friends, to those we worship with. Help us to be carriers of liberty and love and peace. Help us to resist and fight back the temptations to live along the lines of old pathways. Help us to walk the Master's path. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.